All right, good morning, Crossroads. <laughs> I know, that band was awesome. They're so good. Uh, I said, good morning. You should, you should respond when somebody talks to you. How's everybody doing? All right, so uh, my name is Pastor Kim. I am the former senior pastor here, uh, but I also still work for the church part-time. I lead a residency program, and uh, I have two residents, seminary students or graduates, and they're learning in a two-year program because of our church how to lead a church um, in ways seminary never taught them or couldn't teach them. So uh, Alex Stadler and Reagan Gardner are our um, uh, residents. You see them around. Alex is up at Fort Lupton, and Reagan is often here. And uh, we spent the last um, three days in Boise, Idaho uh, at a Theology in the Raw conference learning about issues in a very um, intellectual way that they are going to have to grapple with as future leaders of the church, human sexuality, hell and its meaning, and uh, race, and among other things. Uh, and so we've been there for the last three days. I also work uh, part-time for our region of churches in this uh, denomination. And so I go around preaching and uh, encouraging pastors. So often when I'm not here, this is my, this is my church, I'm doing that. And then I also, uh, since I retired, uh, am working really hard at this little bike shop the nonprofit that I um, started called no More Better Bikes. So that's what I'm doing. It's really a lot of fun. I, I miss you guys. <laughs> Thanks. I, I love you, and it's so good to see uh, most of you. Um, it's because some of you I don't know, and I want to know you. So uh, afterwards, maybe I can meet you. Would you give me the honor of doing that? I'd love to meet you because some of you have come to this church since I've been away, and some of you are, are have come to this church because I left. So I'd love, I love to, I love to meet you. So a weird thing happened. So we were in Boise yesterday, going to fly home on a five o'clock flight, and at the at the eleventh hour, uh, we were told that the plane has a problem with one of its tires. So they pull that plane away and go to the plane garage or whatever with it. And we keep getting these updates that it'll be another hour, it'll be another hour. Well, we finally got on a plane at 11.15 last night. We get to Denver at 1.15. I get home at 2.15. I get in bed at 2.30. And guess what? I kept telling myself, you have got to go to sleep. You're preaching tomorrow. You have got to go to sleep. And, and uh, it didn't work. I finally, I, I finally fell asleep. But this is, I'm not apologizing for my latte with an extra shot this morning because I need it. Uh, but I, I was laying there thinking, uh, you know, as a parent, many of you are parents. How many of you are parents? Parents? Uh, how many of you wish you weren't parents? Um, I, I, was <laughs> I was laying there uh, thinking, this is not unfamiliar to me as a parent, being awake at night. Is it to you as a parent? Like, you know, laying there like, where's my daughter? Or my baby just woke up. Or uh, my little one is sick. Being awake and sleepless is part of parenting, right? Uh, we're in a six-week parenting series called Six Truths Every Parent Should Know. And it's been really good. I hope that you've enjoyed it. And I'm uh, going to, the, the subject today is heartbreak. Heartbreak happens. And I think Pastor Matt asked me to preach this sermon because I'm old. And, and I say that because I'm old enough to have lived through some heartbreak. And maybe I can say something to you that he couldn't say because he hasn't lived through all of it yet. Um, and this, uh, what it means to 
live through and experience and, and, and trust God through heartbreak in parenting. I am now a parent, my wife and I, of six amazing adult kids, grown children. Cheryl and I made it through the ups and downs of raising three boys and three girls, all of whom are gifts from God. We really believe Psalm 127 when it says, children are gift from the Lord. It's true. They are tremendous gifts. Ours range from 21 to 38, and they all live close by. Every one of them is a gift to us. We believe that wholeheartedly. But now that we're on the backside of my general philosophy of raising kids, some of you know my philosophy. It's pretty simple. Uh, parenting is about raising your kids to not need you, but to always need Jesus. That's it. So, and that, of course, it entails a lot of other nuances. But I look at my kids today, and that's largely true. I, I, actively parenting is hard, it's difficult, it's challenging. Many of you are there. <clears throat> but then passive parenting, when you're parenting adult kids, it's a whole different thing, right? You become friends. Uh, they don't need you for, you know, everything to do with life. Uh, it, it's just become your relationship changes, and we love that. We love that. My kids are a gift, uh, but we didn't always feel that way. Uh, uh, no, we didn't. There were times we wanted to send the little gifts back, and actually to wrap them up in airtight containers and send uh, return to sender. We've had those moments, those times in, in parenting, as many of you have, that are challenging, that uh, crushed us, that felt more like trips to hell than trips to Disney World, even while we were at Disney World. Um, those are inevitable realities of raising kids. It's just part of it. Some of you will really relate to what I'm about to say to you. Some of you will be like, um, well, we didn't have it that hard. Good for you. Good for you. So apply these words to where it is hard for you. Because the overarching principles I want to share with you that have sustained us and do so to this day are true for any hardship. And there's not a person listening to me at Fort Lupton, online, or in this room who doesn't have hardship or hasn't. I know you don't exist. Everybody has it. All parents go through hardships. Just expect them if you're on the new end of it. Um, you're not the only parent questioning whether or not you should actually sign your kid up for military school. Re remember what Mark Twain said about kids? Uh, many of you know it. Um, when a child turns 12, he should be kept in a barrel and fed through the hole until he reaches 16, at which time you plug up the hole, right? <clears throat> Boy, that's great advice. Okay, so parenting, raising kids has its hardships. It has its joys, overwhelmingly so. Heartbreaks happen as well. Uh, it's part of being parents. The queen and I are now empty nesters. We survived, as of last summer, we, now, uh, we survived. It's, we're the only ones in our homes now, the only ones. Thank you, Jesus. It's so beautiful. Our goal now is to live long enough to be a problem to our kids. Just kind of turn that around. So, which is kind of peculiar for me to say, actually, because some of you know our story. Uh, becoming a parent, parents was not easy for us. We started, when I started at this church and back in 1982, we had been married four years and we didn't have any kids. We wanted them. We prayed for them. Desperately, we wanted them. We always talked about having two kids and adopting two kids while well, we were dating. And um, we thought we'd have kids four years into our marriage. We always talked about it. Um, but the idea of having kids and actually having them uh, didn't really match up. Uh, all of our married friends were having kids popping them, almost popping them out like buns at a bakery. And they'd ask us, um, so what's your problem? Why are you having kids? 
Um, you know, don't you know how to do it? Um, and we, we wanted so bad to have kids, but we were infertile for eight years. We don't know why. We went through all those embarrassing tests. It was hard, really hard. And it was actually our first heartbreak at wannabe parents. I mean, it started even before kids, that we wanted kids so bad. Some of you may be there, or you're at this place where you've had a miscarriage. You lost a baby after, after carrying it full term. That's a heartbreak, and I know that. And I want you to know I know that. I'm just starting off with this because some of you are there, and most people don't understand infertility. And most people don't understand the depth of loss of a, of a baby through miscarriage or stillborn. It's terrible. Um, for those of you that know people or, or who are infertile, it is the silent agony for a good number of people among us. And I just want you to know it hurts. It's painful, and there's nothing, there's nothing they want more, people who can't have them, than uh, having kids. In fact, when my wife and I couldn't have kids, uh, people were giving their kids up, um, or, or they, they were uh, aborting their kids. Abortion was a big thing. Like it, and we were just so mad. We were just so mad about that. Um, I think I want you to know I understand where you are, most of you. I've, I'm old enough to have lived through a lot of what you're going through or have gone through. Um, and uh, for those of you who struggle with having kids, I just want you, know, you to know I know it's heartbreaking and it crushed us. Uh, so we started our family through adoption. And the adoption process was interesting. Uh, great people doing great work, but it was long. It was intensive, invasive. It felt more like an interrogation at times. People were um, having bio kids all around us, and no one ever asked them about their health history or their alcohol consumption or their financial records or their safety measures in their home. No one asked them to go to classes, to do a home study, not to mention how expensive adoption is. But through that process of adoption, God gave us two beautiful babies, each of them two years apart, and... And then, as sometimes happens, we discovered when we adopted Lindsay, our second one, that Cheryl was pregnant. Now, I, I, I hesitate to even go there sometimes so quickly because I don't want, we hear about that and some of you think, well, yeah, of course, that always happens. You know, adopt and you'll get pregnant. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. It's a low statistic, but it happened to us and you have to know it. So we have um, Paul, then Lindsay, then Ashley was born, and then Luke was born. So we have, uh, now we have two Adopted kids, two biological kids, and so that's four total, all under five years old. So we've been where some of you are. Um, we know the drill. Parenting was uh, both the most exhilarating, emotionally thrilling, joyful, heart-melting experience we ever had, and at the same time, the most heartbreaking, terrifying, life-sucking experience we've ever had. Some of it's not so serious, some of it is. We still talk about the day we lost Luke at Disney World, and we were panicked. It was, have you ever lost a kid somewhere where there's a lot of people? It, we just panicked. We still talk about the time Paul, our first uh, child, was so sick, we actually had to give up, no kidding, we had to give up Michael Jackson tickets, afraid that Paul would die while we were grooving to Billie Jean. We had to give our tickets away. So would you agree with me, Paul owes me big time? <laughs> we, we think about the time Ashley was playing with baby food jars 
and smashed them together and broke them open and stabbed her leg and pulled it open with a gashing wound. And we didn't know it until we heard her crying in the other room. Um, and we had to get stitches. We think about the time that Lindsay um, threw up in the car and it was so violent it came out of her nose. <laughs> so I mean, these are things, right? And so we had those four kids and then we decided God wanted us to be a foster family so we did foster care for 10 years and 38 kids came through our home and from that God blessed us with two more kids we had the privilege of adopting, uh, Isaac and Destiny. Because of our infertility, we started parenting later than we wanted. We didn't plan to start in our young 30s. And so that, that meant that with our kids in the age range, we actively parented for 30 straight years, 30 years straight into our 60s because of the gap between the, the kids' ages. And it was 30 years of praying and crying and laughing and photos and trips and fears and anger and sleeplessness, celebrations, letters, hugs of apology, shouting, slamming doors, screaming, and love. I mean, it's just all that mixture. So we get it. We did it. We're still doing it. You can too. Jim, Jim Gaffigan, when he was a new dad, said, every night before I, I get my one hour of sleep, I have the same thought. Well, that's a wrap on another day of acting like I know what I'm doing. I wish I were exaggerating, but I'm not. Most of the time, I feel entirely unqualified to be a parent. I call these times being awake. It's, and it's so true. By the way, if you've not heard Pastor Matt's sermon on why you're not able to parent your kids well, it's really a provocative title, you should go listen to it. He preached a couple weeks ago. Absolutely brilliant and really moved me. Um, but it is true. No one makes you get a license to be a bio parent, right? You don't, you don't have to take a test. You don't have to, you don't have to prove yourself. You, you should have to do something, like you should have to work in the church nursery for a while, or you should have to teach preschool. You should have to teach a, a, a sixth grade class somewhere because you, it, may, it may take some of the, some of the desire away. Um, over the years, I've experienced parenting in my own home that wasn't always easy because raising uh, pastor's kids isn't always easy. Even though Cheryl and I tried to tell our kids, look, uh, we're going to not make these big expectations on you just because you're pastor's kids. But you know what? The church put expectations on my kids, right? So they would say things to my kids like, <clears throat> and you're the pastor's kid? And they'd come home and, you know, they were so deflated. And it's not your fault, but because, you, you know, you, you're not the ones who did it. They, you, you weren't even here then. But they, they heard it. And it was like... Uh, so it's just these multi-layers of difficulty. So I've seen it in my own home, and I have also seen it in many of your homes. So over my 38 years, I've been on the front row of some of your pain and heartbreak and agony. I've been there. I've seen you lose a baby. I've seen a child who um, died or someone young commit suicide. I, I've seen that agony and that heartbreak, as well as the, the screaming matches and the fighting. Um, we've all, we all go through it. The rebellion, um, the ha I hate yous, drugs, alcohol perhaps, runaways, deception. When your kids give you the finger, uh, teen promiscuity or pregnancy, rejection of your morals, of your values, maybe violence in your own home, suicide threats, mental health issues, addictions of many kinds the screaming, the punched holes in the walls and the doors, sleepless nights, hatred, even death, 
Many of you already know that our, uh, our daughter and her husband lost their, their, our first grandchild at 30 days old. She had a, a baby and Jack lived uh, 30 days. That was eight years ago. And that was really the hardest thing I have ever experienced in my life. And um, watching Jack die in my daughter's arms, I can't even imagine how she handled it and is handling it. Talk about heart heartbreak, right? Police have been called to our home. Arrests have been made. Time has been served. Words have been used like, like sharp weapons to cut each other and to stab and, and rip apart souls. We've been horrified and angered at alcohol and drugs, particularly with the, with the um, legalization of recreational marijuana, with the choice of friends, with calls from the school, angry, angry words, shouting matches, slam doors. I, we've been there. So heartbreak in parenting happens. It always does to one degree or another. Maybe you can't relate at that level. Maybe you can relate at something so much worse. It's part of having and raising kids. Why? Because we live in a broken world. Everything is damaged by sin. Even the best things in life are damaged, stained by sin. Sin you're born into, sin you participate in, and sin that has affected everything. One mom wrote me this heartbreaking note about her rebellious teenage 14-year-old daughter who ran away with, with her boyfriend and was gone for a long period of time. During that time, she wrote me this note. We grieve the loss of beautiful hopes and dreams we had. The shattered, jagged pieces lay scattered at our feet. Our lives have been profoundly affected. Nothing we've been through makes any sense. Our why questions didn't bring us any satisfying answers. We'll never be the same. There's a little prophetic book in the Old Testament called Habakkuk. It's a person's name. He was a prophet, and he told Israel, bad days are coming. At the end of his little three-chapter book, he says these words, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor, the fruit be, uh, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the ye uh, fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. I'm going to stop mid-sentence because... We've been there as parents. We've been to that place of heartbreak and hardship, feeling like a failure, like nothing we do to plow this ground is working, losing something and someone we love, the seeming hopelessness of nothing coming to fruition, nothing blossoming, just, just dead twigs, seemingly, seasons of dryness, emptiness, worry. We've been there. But then Habakkuk writes these words right on the tail of what he just said, yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. And that's promising and very hopeful, but my question is, how do you get there? Because it's one thing to hear or read a passage in a book or in God's book and, and, and nod and go, yeah, that's good, but how? But how? How do you get there? How do you move from where you are to that, from the barrenness to, yet will I rejoice in the Lord? That's not as easy as just making a decision. So I have three things I want to share with you, and then I'll be done. These things sustained us and got us through, and these are three things among many. I'm just going to give you these because these seem to rise to the surface for us. And I just want you to be encouraged, okay? I'm going to encourage you, I hope, with what I'm about to say. Three things when heartbreak happened in our home and in our family and, and if you don't have a home, I'm, I'm in a family, you're not a parent, it's okay. You have hardship. These apply to you. Number one, 
lean heavy on God. Lean heavy on God. What does that mean? Well, at a minimum, it means start praying. Start praying seriously. And I know some of you are rolling your eyes metaphorically, and you're thinking, oh, really? I came to hear something trite? And, and you're thinking, of course you're going to say that. You're a pastor. And I guess I would say this. I've seen many of you, and I've seen it in my own life, where I say I believe in God, but I, I'm practically an atheist. I pra- I, I'm not believing like I believe a God who can change lives. I'm not believing in a God by praying to him that he would rescue my children, that he would grant love to me in the middle of this pain and this sorrow, that he would give us wisdom. This is the God who created the cosmos and he loves you and he knows what you're going through. Why wouldn't you talk to him? Some of you are not leaning heavy on God when hard times come. In fact, you blame him and you you turn your back on him maybe. I don't know. All I'm going to do is plead with you, lean heavy on God and pray. And if you're raising kids with somebody, pray together. That's hard for many people I'm discovering. To decide you're going to pray together outside of a meal about something you're going through. If you're raising kids with somebody, determine you're going to pray about this thing with that person out loud. That does two things. Number one, it solidifies within your souls what your partner is feeling and thinking. It's it's awkward only for 12 seconds. It's awkward for some of you, I know, because you're not doing it. You should. We should pray together about this. And then you hold each other's hands or you embrace each other. And in whatever happens, tears, you pray and ask God to help you with this heartbreak you're going through. So what, number one, praying together moves you close proximity to each other. And number two, it helps you take a united front in front of your kids. And that's so very, very important because children have this spidey sense of how they can separate kids. I mean, how they can separate parents. Kids have this sense of how they can play a mom and a dad against one another. So lean heavy on God and pray. Number two. Move from why. Uh, So there are heartbreaks that happen in families that, in people's lives, where we just, it's beyond our comprehension. We don't understand, and so we naturally ask, why? Why is she doing this? Why did we experience this? Why isn't God doing something? Why are we here? Why are we struggling with this? Why is she so rebellious? Why? And why is very common, and it's very natural, and and even Jesus asked why, so it's not a bad thing, but I want to ask you to do something that moves you off the why to the next question, because there's a more important question. It's a bigger question. Because you just can't ask why and stay there. God always moves us to the next question, the more important one. It's how his love and his grace seems to always kind of shine through like lights on the page. When you, when you read his word, he's always moving us from why to what now. Not like, oh, what now? What's, what's going to happen now? No, what now do we do? Because when you're stuck on why, you're stuck on why, and I'll tell you how you know. If you're, if you're stuck at the why, you're you're blaming other people, something or someone. You're angry, you're bitter, maybe you're playing the victim. I see that a lot, especially with younger parents and kids. You're resentful, 
or you might be sinking into some real guilt or serious depression. When heartbreak happens, any heartbreak, any hardship, move from why to what now as quickly as possible. You can ask why, but move from why to what now as quickly as, as possible. Even if you, even if you, even if I could say to you, give you a good answer for why you're going through this or why this happened. Even if I or someone else could answer the why question for you, logically, you're still in pain. You're still, you still need to move forward. You're, it doesn't satiate your need to get some clarity and peace. It, it's not the place you land. You can't stay at why. Why needs to get to what now? What now does God say? Remember Job? Old Testament guy, Job, one of God's favorites, God and Satan made a deal that Job wouldn't, wouldn't leave God if Job lost everything. Well, it so happens that Job lost everything, including his health, his children, they died, his, his wealth, uh, everything. Uh, he didn't lose one thing, though. You know what he didn't lose? He didn't lose his nagging wife, the one thing he wanted to lose <laughs> by that time. And then he got three friends around him who encouraged him to demand a hearing before God. So Job did. God, why? Where are you? What are you doing? Why am I going through this? So Job does this for a while. And then at the end of the book, uh, Job's like wilted. He's worn out. And God says, are you done? And uh, God says, stand on your feet. Where were you when I created the world? Who are you to question me? I mean, he just gives Job the business. And uh, Job repents and everything's restored. Don't stay on why. You'll get bitter, or you are. You'll get angry. You'll play the victim. So move to what now. And what's the what now? Here's my final thing. Number three, listen to the right message. So that's my what now. So lean heavily on God. Move from why to what now. And the what now, what now, my suggestion is listen to the right message. Here's where I'm going. There's a place in the New Testament, uh, the last 27 books of the Bible, and uh, most of it, not much of it was written by uh, a man named Paul, and he was God's representative, and uh, Paul wrote these amazing truths to different um, Christians in letter form, and he wrote a letter to the church people at Corinth, and in his second letter, at chapter 12, verse 10, he writes about a thorn, a thorn he had that he wanted God to remove. He says this, verse 7, a thorn was given to me, so um, in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. And then he says these stunning words. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Okay, there's a thorn. He's talking about a thorn. What is that thorn? Nobody knows. He doesn't say. In God's wisdom, he doesn't allow Paul to tell us what the thorn is. Nobody knows. There's a lot of speculation. Maybe Paul had you know, an uh, eyesight problem, or maybe he had depression, or maybe he was bald. Well, not, bald is not a problem. Uh, maybe, he had, maybe he had a limp. It was a thorn in the flesh. So maybe it was a sin issue. Maybe it was a, an addiction. 
uh, we don't know. And you know why we don't know? Because if Paul said, my thorn in the flesh was that I struggle with uh, insecurity. Uh, my thorn in the flesh is that I, that I have this anger toward people that betray me. Whatever it was. If, what, if he said what his thorn was and we read it, we could say, oh, that's not my problem. And then we just read right past that. But we have to stop here. Why? Because Paul doesn't say what his thorn is. You know what that means? That means you can write your thorn in the text. Your hardship can be in this text. Your thorn, whatever you're going through, whatever hardship or heartbreak you struggle with in your life, is you can apply, apply this text to that thorn. Three times he pleaded with the Lord. Have you ever pled with God for something? Have you ever pled with God on your knees with your face in the dirt? I have. I'm doing it right now. I'm pleading with God for one of my kids. I'm pleading with my face in the dirt and the, and the dirt turning to mud because of my tears. I ple I'm pleading with God. Paul pled with God. Three times I pleaded with the Lord, take this away. And God did not. He did not take the thorn away. Paul wanted him to. He was asking him. But God said to Paul, my grace is what you need. You don't need me to take your thorn away. You need me to give you my grace. You need to accept my grace. It's sufficient. Why? Because my power to do for you what you need done is perfected in your weakness. Why is that true? Why can he say, when I am weak, then I am strong? Because then you're not in control. Then you're not relying on yourself. You're relying on God. Anybody who thinks they're in control, it's always a miserable life for you because you're never in control. You're always miserable because you're never in control. It's stealing everything God wants to give you, your joy, your happiness, his grace. So do you see what's happening? Satan attached a message to Paul's thorn, and it was a message to harass him, to discourage him, to beat him down, to put his foot on Paul's neck and hold him to the ground, to tell him he's a failure, that there's no hope, that God's not listening, he doesn't care. It caused Paul to despair and you need to remember, Satan is a liar and a harasser. You are hearing a harassment message from Satan now, perhaps, in your life. Or you have, haven't you? I know that message. I've read it before. I've heard it. I've listened to that message in my life. You're so stupid, Scadam. You call yourself a pastor? God is punishing you. It's hopeless. You're hopeless. You should be ashamed. Aren't you embarrassed? But here's the thing. God himself also attaches a message to the thorns in our lives. And it's a different message. It's a message of hope and promise and faithfulness and encouragement in the middle of your thorn experience, whatever it is. And that message is, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. I have been pleading it with my face in the ground for my son and his mental issues. And I went home one night and I, during wine time and I told the queen, I said, I'm, I'm praying for this son, pleading with, to, to God to heal him. And, and, she, and I said, uh, or she said, uh, well, I'm not. And I, I looked at her and said, you're not? And she said, no. And then she said this, have you not seen 
God's faithfulness in our lives throughout his life over and over and over again. And then she said, why would he not be faithful now? And it was a little belligerent. I agree with you. It was a little belligerent on her part to treat her pastor. She humbled me. It's absolutely my grace is sufficient for you. I was listening to Satan's message a little bit. God reminded me of his message through my wife. God's message is always hopeful. Satan's is always harassing. Whatever your thorn is, as I wrap this up, whatever you're facing, whatever you're longing for, whatever you're dealing with, whatever heartache you are carrying around as a parent or just as a person, God has attached a message to that thorn. The question is, which message are you going to listen to? Your strength or your discouragement and demise will depend on which message you're going to carry forward. The what now? What message am I listening to now? And it moves you forward because in your weakness, God's power is made strong. It's made strong because you are finally not in control and you're giving it to God and he can work in your life and he will. We all have thorns. We all have struggles. Life is hard for every one of us. We all have pain and sorrow and tremendous ache and shame, especially as parents. Listen. So I'm going to say this and be done, but you have to process this. The real issue is not even the thorn. It's the message attached to it. Thorns are just thorns. Think about that. We have to look at our heartaches and come, that, that come into our lives, and we have to say, there's a message here from Satan, and there's a message here from God. My discouragement and despair or my strength and my hope will depend on which message I listen to. Thorns are thorns. We all have them. It's part of living in this sinful world. So maybe the what now for some of you is to start listening. Three things. Lean heavy on God. Talk to him. Move off why. And get to the what now by listening and reading the right message. Okay, I'm going to pray. Um, God, thank you. I, I don't even know how to start a prayer without saying thank you for how augustly you love us and how that is so evidenced by what you've taught us and what you say to us through your word. Would you meet us here now as we conclude our time um, taking communion together? And then singing songs of, of, of ratification, of singing songs of declaration. And um, whoever's hurting really awful right now, God, would you just go to her and read your message into her soul? Overwhelm her. Overwhelm him with the truth of, of your amazing love for their good, for our good, and for your glory, I pray, in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So maybe your step would be to connect with, connect yourself somewhere, and this is how we do it here. You can text the word Jesus, the name Jesus, to 720 
513-1933, and somebody's going to respond. Maybe that's your, your next what now? What are you supposed to do now? Okay, so uh, maybe do that. So every week at Crossroads, we take communion. You grab one of these cups when you come in, and then um, we take communion. So we, we, these cups are because of COVID, by the way, right? So this is safe communion. Um, do you realize that this little piece of bread that's unleavened, doesn't have yeast, is representing for us Jesus' body, and this juice represents his blood? Do you realize that all of Christianity revolves around this? Please don't do this in a trite manner, even though this feels trite sometimes. Don't let that happen. This is still the bread representing the body of God who gave himself for you and, and died on your behalf. And this is his blood, represents his blood. This is the centerpiece of everything we believe. Don't let familiarity with it Breed contempt in your heart. Let it be for you what it is intended to be, the essence of what we believe about a God who loves us and showed us that he loves us. In that, he sent Jesus to be our Savior, to forgive us for our sins, to give us hope and life, and it all coalesces in his action on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, all right? So take the bread. Take it, eat it, remember. And then Jesus took the cup after supper and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, my blood which is shed for you. Meet him here right now. When you drink it, just pray something to him. Say something to Jesus. And when you drink it, just remember, pray, and believe. All right. Hard turn here. We're going to stand. We're going to sing a great song. And I want you to sing it at the top of your lungs and let Jesus know you believe his name is wonderful. What a wonderful name it is. Let's stand and sing together.